Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to another episode of Big Swinging Stocks. We're back this week with Invest Like a Financial Journalist with a special guest and someone I have personally been stalking on the internet for a very long time from across the Tasman Sea, Frances Cook. She's the host of Cooking the Books, the author of Your Money, Your Future and Tales from a Financial Hot Mess with practical, relatable tips on how our generation can get ahead and take charge of their money. Frances, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What a lovely intro. Oh, I'm so excited for you to be here. And I've been dying to ask you this question actually is like, how did this all start for you? Like, what's your first investing memory? Well, you can probably guess from the title of one of my books there, Tales from a Financial Hot Mess, that I am not someone who is just always great with money. Same girl. Right? <laughs> you know, you, you just, you don't get taught about it. And I think I hit that sort of late 20s stage where I thought, I've had a few pay rises. I'm by no means paid a heck of a lot, but I'm paid better than some people are. I feel like I'm on this treadmill and I'm getting nowhere. What is going on? And the good thing is that obviously working as a journalist at the time, I wasn't a financial journalist at that point, but working as a journalist, you can really, you can boil down journalism to go and find something that you didn't know before and tell people about it in a way that makes sense. You know, that that's basically journalism. So Cheat I thought, sheet. Right? So I was like, okay, well, maybe I can do that with money on company time and <laughs> be educating myself on company time. Which is exactly what I did. And that's how the Cooking the Books podcast started, interviewing all of these fantastic experts who let me throw stupid questions at them. Very kind. Thank you so much. And I, I was amazed at how fast things turned around. That It really is true that people overestimate what you can do in one year, but underestimate what you can do in five. You know, even just actually, I think in a couple of years, I had totally turned around my money story. And then getting into investing with, the micro investing platforms we have now, I literally started with $5 a week, which I still think is the best way to start because it takes the pressure off. If the market goes down suddenly, as it will, as it, you know, that's how you make money half the time, it needs to go down. You need to keep investing through that time. If you've built up $200 instead of $2,000 or $20,000 or whatever, it's a lot less scary the first mm, time that happens, first time. Yeah. right? So I started really small and I still think that's the best way to start. It's such a wonderful analogy around. I think a lot of people relate to being on that treadmill. And I think your story is inspirational because it doesn't have to be that hard and it doesn't actually take that long to see some difference. So from that stage, and you obviously, I love that you turned your lessons into a book. What's the investing philosophy now? Like, what are you doing all of this for? So I am a very lazy pursuer of financial independence. I think I, you're the same person. Yeah. <laughs> the lazy way is, but do you know what I love about money is in every other area of life, you get ahead by putting in more work, working harder, doing more research. And money is very much do your work and, and do a little bit of learning up front. And then the lazier you are with it after that, the better. You know, that, that infamous study where the investors who were dead and had left their money totally alone made the most. Made the most because they didn't yeah. touch it. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. this about money. It's the best for us lazy girls. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Are you investing for a particular goal in mind? I am someone who sees financial independence and sorting out your money. It is a path to security for me. And it's it's a path to security for my family. So I also have a toddler and I'm married. And so it's a very different situation from when I first started <laughs> learning about money and had very carefree life. But, you know, when I, I make my decisions, it is security for myself. It is security for my family. I am now the main breadwinner in my family. And I like knowing that I am making decisions that are good for my child's future, that are good for my family's future, that my husband and I will have options in the future, that, you know, I work in media and I love it. I personally don't want to work anywhere else. But you also have to be really realistic that media jobs can sometimes be a bit flaky, a bit unreliable. You know, Mm. here in New Zealand, we had an entire radio station shut down out of the blue within literally a few hours. And that was, was only a month TikTok. ago. I was following was the whole crazy. thing. It was amazing. Weren't the clips like just incredible? Oh God. But it was like very, that was a very intense. And I think for a lot of people, a bit of a reminder that your job, even in industries that maybe aren't considered flaky, the market is changing and certainly businesses are feeling pressure. People may be made redundant. So having that, you know, stability as a North Star is I think a very, reasonable goal. Do you think that as a financial journalist, your exposure to sort of the media narrative, like the hype around the high highs and the low lows and everything being quite binary with regard to stock market news, does that influence you at all in how you invest? It can. It's funny because I talk to a lot of fund managers and financial advisors and that's all, you know, a really core part of my job that I'm talking to these people all the time. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so active on social media and I do a lot of Q&As on social media and really invite people into the comment section and I I really try to stay open to what the average everyday person's experience is because (laughs) here's the thing is it's not even just the the media hype. Media hype is bad, but I've been working in media for 12 years now. Mm -hmm. So you kind of get immune to headlines and you learn to filter really quickly. But I had a fund manager say to me, I think it was just last week, he was talking about a client and he said, oh, you know, he's 60 now, so he's he's not wanting to do too much high risk. He's, he's wanting something that gives a bit of a return. And so I said to him, why don't we just take a little bit of your portfolio? Why don't we just take 25 million and we'll just land bank it and we'll just leave it alone and it'll be fine. And I'm sitting there gobsmacked, like just 25 million. How do those words leave your, your mouth? astronomical wealth, sir. <laughs> and so I think that's my big thing is, is also trying to stay focused on what the average person's concerns are, the normal concerns and what most people need to know. Because when you are marinating in the world of money and talking to fund managers and, and getting all these wonderful tips and tricks, they're mm. so open and generous with their knowledge but they also live in a different world from you and I and you Mm. have to be so careful to keep your feet on the ground and I'm I'm always actively working on that. That's a really really beautiful insight you can become quite out of touch with Mm -hmm. people living paycheck to paycheck when you're worried about what you're going to do with the small portion of your 25 million dollar portfolio. Well no the 25 million was the small portion. Yeah. <laughs> it was I think he said that the hundred it was a 150 million portfolio 
the wealth out there is truly astounding. It's truly astounding. So let's talk about, let's dig into it. You regularly, I love the name of your podcast, Cookie the Books, by the way, but let's talk about your portfolio. So what's it made up of? How do you invest? So I am a classic index funds girl. Hey. Yeah, I love it. And like I say, right, the lazy tips and tricks. I'm sure lots of people who listen to this podcast will already know about index funds and ETFs. But, you know, I, I just think it's such a great way, particularly at the beginning of your investing journey. But honestly, it's still what I use. It's still the core of my portfolio that you are automatically spread across hundreds of companies, some of the best companies in the world. You can use it to make sure you're exposed to lots of different industries. It's so hard to leave behind industry bias when you're investing and an index fund really helps you do that. You can be exposed to multiple countries, which is also super important. You know, if you think about it, your job, probably your house, your savings account is probably all tied up in your home country things can and do go wrong really quickly, even if it's just a recession, but you know, worse things can happen too. And if you are invested across other different countries, that's a really good money strategy. So yeah, I love index funds. I just think they solve so many problems. There's no need really to complicate it past that. We love a lazy path to wealth, but what's your split? Actually, it's a really good point around diversifying across industries naturally as an index fund, but also diversifying across countries. Do mm. you kind of have a target split between international or even particular countries? Yeah. So my biggest investment is into just a global fund. So mm -hmm. that solves that for me. I also do have some in just the NZX50 and the ASX200, because I do think New Zealand and Australia have really strong economies and New Zealand particularly tends to have really high dividend paying companies. Mm. So I have that as almost like a step above bonds, but a step below some of those high growth shares. Yeah. Sort of my medium high risk investment risk sweet spot for you <laughs> yeah. yeah so that's yeah. you know a little bit more of an earner there mm. you don't want too much into that sort of thing when you're my age i am 34 so i want most of my money going into really high growth stocks at this point but you know a little bit into the dividend paying stocks and just a smidgy smidge into a couple of bond funds because bonds just this the last few months actually have been basically a once in a hundred year buying opportunity because interest rates went so nuts and were so unexpected that bond prices crashed. I just couldn't help myself just having a little dabble and a little play and getting to know bonds, but certainly not the majority of my strategy. The majority is just straight into that global index fund. It's done me very well. Hmm. I want to ask you around specifically about why haven't you prioritized income? Why the growth play? What is it about your age that makes that right for you? Mm, so I have a longer timeline until I plan to retire or be financially independent. Even if, okay, so even if I hit financial independence tomorrow, I would not retire because I really do genuinely love my job. There is a world where I could see myself going part-time and then I remember how much of a workaholic I can be. And I'm just like, that. I would go part-time and then I'd immediately pick up a second part-time job. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I can't help myself. But that financial independence is really important. So in order to grow that wealth, in order to really grow that nest egg, 
the strategy for me is those high growth stocks, the high growth companies. And while I love me a good dividend stock, I see those as more for when I maybe hit the 50 or 60 and I'm wanting to draw down more of that investment money because we're talking then things like power companies, supermarkets, even sometimes property funds can pay out really nicely, right? But even those good high dividend paying stocks aren't going to match what you can get from a good time commitment into the growth stocks. I mean, the growth stocks, you've got to give them time because they're going to go super wonky as we are seeing currently. But you know, as long as you give them that time, they're going to make way more for you. And I do have that time. So I just want the biggest opportunity I can get so that when I'm 60, there's absolutely no problem traveling the world while my kids off at university or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know New Zealand tax structures, but presumably drawing down on that investment post-retirement is a far nicer (laughs) tax play than drawing down on it now when you're presumably earning quite a bit from your primary income. So I want to take you all the way back. What was that first micro-investment in? Oh, okay. I'm going to have to remember. I think it would have just been the NZX50. Ah, beautiful. Um, Love it. That's that's a classic, isn't it? Yeah, that's very fiscally (laughs) responsible for someone who wrote a book about being a hot mess. Like that is, that's very, that's very sensible. (laughs) And I think you mentioned, did you start with $5? Yeah, 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 just five bucks. And I did an auto investment. So I just set it up so that the day after I was paid, it was just five bucks in every time. And I really do think we've got so much going on in our lives. I still automate absolutely everything I can because if you give yourself the opportunity to forget, you will. Life is really busy. The moment you make it something that has to be done on a weekly or a pay basis, you give yourself that option to be like, oh, do I actually want to send that money there? If it's automated, it's like a chore, like a bill. Like no one thinks to themselves, oh, I'm not going to pay rent this week if you can help it. So I think that's some of the best advice out of sight, out of mind. And you'd be surprised by how quickly the money actually stacks up. 100%. I mean, look at, you know, super for you guys or KiwiSaver for me, you know, you don't even notice it going out after a while and yet it stacks up so fast and you just replicate that in your own individual investing life. Yeah. So all the way to now, what was the most recent thing you bought? Oh, okay. So I've been very lazy. I used to have a, a few different index funds that I would quite enjoy. I'd split up my cash across all the different ones each time, which I know there's a debate in the personal finance community about whether you should even bother having more than one index fund. And probably if you've got a global index fund, you would be totally fine. You could do that. But I quite I find it fun having more than one and watching how they're all performing against each other. It just keeps me interested. And I think sometimes we get so caught on what is the mathematically most correct thing to do versus what we find fun, what we find personally fulfilling. You've got to keep yourself interested in it, right? Otherwise you won't keep doing it. That said, Again, now having a toddler, I've just been dumping that weekly payment into that global fund every time because I'm, I'm quite tired all the time. <laughs> Automating at its best, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really, really good advice. I also want to know, so that's your most recent investment, clearly a lover of ETFs. Is there anything else in the portfolio? Any crypto? Any trusts? Property trusts? 
Yeah. Oh, I definitely get into mm-hmm. property funds and I am not a huge fan of residential property as an investment in both New Zealand and Australia. I think the markets have gone so high on price that it's really, really hard to get a rental return that makes sense. It just doesn't really make sense on the numbers if you're trying to buy in now. Commercial property, though, is an entirely different matter and more expensive often to buy into. You know, if you're going to buy a whole mall, I mean, do you have a spare few mil again? (laughs) As that fund manager was putting out, that's for those sorts of people. But commercial property funds let you get in there and, like I say, often pay out really good dividends. They're a nice little income stream if that's what you're looking for. So I do have a couple of property funds in there as well, one in Australia, one in New Zealand. Crypto. Now, crypto, I apologize to anyone who's a big believer because I know crypto is is one of those Marmite issues, or should I say Vegemite, seeing as I'm talking to a lot of Australians. Yes. You know, you love it or you hate it. And I'm uh, somewhat neutral on it. I do think crypto will be good in the future, but it hasn't made its case yet. Feels like AI to me a little bit, though. Don't you feel like 10 years ago, we're all like, oh, that's nice. And now we're like, ChatGPT is going to replace me at work. And I wonder <laughs> if Bitcoin is doing that. It's like the technology preceded the purpose a little bit. Yes, a little bit. But the problem with crypto, right, is is it a currency or is it an investment? Because it cannot function as both. If you're trying to use it as a currency to pay for things, and it's currently having these wild swings in value. Well, that's not really working, is it? If you're saying its use case is that it's a currency, then why would you invest in it? The way that it's going at the moment doesn't make sense to me. Now, I do think, and especially blockchain is going to be used for all sorts of things. And I do think crypto will find a use. And maybe my inv- not investing at the moment I might look back at it and say, damn, I missed a 500% return and that would have been so good. And I'm realistic about that. That might happen. But I kind of look at it a bit like the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s. The internet was big. Getting everything digital was the future. But did you know which company was going to make it then? No. And a bunch of them crashed and I couldn't have picked the Facebook out of all of that, you know? And I feel the same way with crypto. Someone's going to survive. Someone's going to make it big. Do I know who? No. So you're not getting my money currently. For other people who want to take a bet, that's cool. Yeah. It does feel completely like just a stab in the dark, a bit of a hunger games between the cryptocurrencies at the moment about which projects will survive. And I'm probably a little bit more excited about some of the tech use cases for it. But again, it doesn't feel like it's found its feet yet. But you've said that property funds, ETFs, all very responsible, all very classic financial, you know, commentator, fund manager advice, Warren Buffett's advice. What's been the biggest increase? Like what's had the biggest return for you in your portfolio? Actually, the property fund, but that's partly because if I'm looking at it now, everything is down. (laughs) And the one thing, I mean, you would think commercial property would be down as well, which it is, but not as much as everything else in my portfolio. So I've kind of got... Interesting. The the biggest winner is currently the least loser. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah because the, the entire yeah. market i mean bonds are down shares are down property is down yeah. it's so unusual for everything to be down at the same time and i think that's what's and, and this is me showing my journalist roots it's such an interesting time that i'm almost having fun with it even though it's terrible news for almost all of us yeah because it's quite novel right it generally markets are cyclical particular types of equities or bond like everything usually has an up and up ebb and a flow this is unprecedented because everything everything is, is suffering down. everything sucks yeah <laughs> it's really interesting about commercial property has new zealand experienced a reluctance to go back into the office because in sydney in the cbd there is just for lease signs mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I personally work from home 90% of the time now. Mm, so yeah. I'm part of that, right? Yeah. And I love it. I do go into the head office roughly once a fortnight. I do quite regular media appearances talking about various topics. So I'll try and cram as many of those into yeah. one day as possible. I've done my hair and dressed. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I look cute. Let's get the max. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll, you know, have lots of meetings with various, you know, industry sources and fund managers and talk to them about what they're seeing and yada, yada, yada. But often as I'm walking between, you know, all these various cafes where I'm meeting up with people and walking past a bunch of, you know, shops that are closed. It's really interesting to see that. But I do think, I mean, this is super anecdotal. I do not have stats to back it up. But I do get the feeling that people are actually starting to miss some of those in-person things. I mean, I feel like all of my friends are either leaving to move to London or having babies. You know, like everyone's at that real sort of turning point in life. It's the London baby fork that yeah. everyone goes through. <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's, it's that thing where we've, we've put so much of life on hold through COVID that I feel like people want to get back into it now. And so people are going back into offices more than I thought they would, which is very interesting, and also getting more back into travel and things in a big way and, and big events and things. So I do think there's going to be a rebalancing that comes probably in the next year or so, I I feel like we're going to hit a bit more of an equilibrium. There will be some carnage along that road, unfortunately, but I do think we're going to rebalance. So overall portfolio, tell me, what's your net worth? Now, are we talking once we take debt out of the equation? Yes. In that case, I have a negative net worth. (gasps) You must be a homeowner. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, I just bought my first investment property. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Very exciting. Very terrifying. In New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. So we actually have just moved house to be closer to my mum. And so a a little block came up literally five minutes away from my mum that was for sale to build on. And we just thought we cannot pass this up. Bought it. Housing market immediately crashed. Love that for me. So I'd bought in before everything crashed. And I just really, I mean, I never wanted to sell our original house. It's in a very good location. And I always thought it would make for a decent rental. And we bought before prices did what they've done through COVID, you know, that insane spike. And so I just thought if we sell this house now, A, we're going to be selling for less than what I believe it's worth. B, it just we're not going to get a second opportunity like this in terms of how the maths works out. So took a lot of convincing the bank. Man, the banks make you work for it these days. (laughs) 
<laughs> but we got there. So in terms of having two houses now, even though we had a good amount of equity, because I'm a big believer in revolving mortgages and paying off as much as you can as fast as you can. So we had a decent amount of equity, but we are now way back to the beginning in terms of a negative net worth. <laughs> we are probably, I haven't checked it recently, but we're not quite negative a million, but we'd be getting there. Wow. I'm fascinated by this because I think a lot of people in the finance community have partners who generally speaking, especially people who are pursuing fire very aggressively, you kind of have to have a partner who's also willing to eat ramen five nights a week with you. Like you could, they kind of have to be on exactly the same page, but like the general population, usually there's our partner who is either more risk averse, less into finance and the one that is slightly more risk tolerant and into finance. Have you found that to be the case in your marriage as well? I will admit that we don't eat ramen very much. Food is probably our biggest expense. <laughs> we have a toddler as well. So we there's do. like one picky eater as well. <laughs> he eats weird stuff. I'll tell you what, this morning he was determined he wanted to eat whole grain mustard by the spoonful, like not on anything, just the mustard. I was like, I'm sure you don't want that, buddy. He was pretty sure he did. Anywho, sorry to come back to your original question. It's quite funny in terms of we have wildly different risk tolerances, but they're not the same not the same areas. So in shares and stocks, he actually has a higher risk tolerance than I do. Like he loves stock picking. He will pick individual companies and put quite a bit into those and really loves watching the rise and fall. He does also have a good amount of index funds as his core. So for people who know the core satellite strategy, we have about 70% into the index funds, 30-ish percent into, you know, things that you've picked, you find it fun and interesting. He kind of does that. So he has a higher risk tolerance than I do when it comes to shares and stocks. As we have discovered on our property journey, I have a higher risk tolerance when it comes to property. And what we've worked out is that it's his association with debt. He hates being in debt. We're in a huge amount of debt now. <laughs> of course, we're very much on the hook to the bank. And I, that's super interesting to me that I was just like, no, I know we have the income to make this work and I know the numbers make sense and let's just go. And he just saw that headline mortgage figure and hated it. So that was an interesting discussion. We still got there because the numbers make sense, the maths make sense, and he's very much a spreadsheet guy. If, if you want to convince him, whip out Excel, which is bad because I hate Excel. But we got there. We made the numbers make sense. But I, I thought it was super interesting that when it came to different investment types, wildly different risk tolerances. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point you made around it's not really about convincing. Like it's not really about like dragging him, kicking and screaming there. I think it's a really nice point around if you do have a partner who has and it's always just different risk tolerances, like different perspectives. And also like to, you know, we always ask the question at the beginning of the show around what's your association with investing? Like how did this all come out for you? And a lot of the time I think we don't really talk enough about how much your early experiences with money and with investment or lack thereof, as the case was for a lot of people who just never had that conversation growing up. It really sticks with you and equally debt can be a really powerful there's like lots of powerful feelings people have around it so like joining him on his level is a, is a really nice point to make when you do have a partner 
who may not quite have the same opinions about you on a particular investment strategy. It's a really, really good idea. Yeah. Really good idea. I mean, money, number one cause of divorce, right? (gasps) I know. That statistic haunts me. The problems that come from it are usually anything Mm. but the actual money issue. It's always what's underlying it. And I think that is where my job has helped me. I also do a lot of speaking events where I'll talk to people about this sort of stuff, which also, you know, when you're preparing for them, they say the best way to learn is to teach, right? And you, you, you sit down and you prepare for these events and you really, really think about the issue. And it, it does force you to actually think through some things in a bit more depth than you have before. And I'm a huge believer that one of the reasons that money conversations are so sensitive is because it it hits all of those really vulnerable parts of ourselves. You know, you ask someone how much they're paid and they hear how important are you, how knowledgeable are you, you know, and money can also be how smart are you, how much are you beating the system? And so it's anything but the money that's causing the issue. The money is just what's triggering it. And so I think especially as I started to learn more about money and I really went down this career path that I'm, I mean, I'm so far down the financial journalism career path now, but you know, you start off and, and you, you're just learning and you're figuring things out. And when we first started having those conversations, it was an entirely different thing where it was quite fractious sometimes. And it was sometimes very hard to get on the same page. You're, you're talking at cross purposes. You think you're saying one thing and the other person is hearing a different thing. And I'm a little bit of a bull in a china shop girl. If I think that something isn't working, I'll just try it again and again and again. (laughs) And so we just kept having these conversations where I was trying to figure out where we were going wrong. And you sort of slowly figure out the other person's trigger points and when you need to take a beat and be like, you know what, we're going to come back to this conversation tomorrow. Let's both have a think about it and come back to it fresh eyes tomorrow. Or you might say, I know we're arguing about this, but is it because of that? And just having that grace and trying to approach it from the other person's point of view can get you so much further. I mean, in all negotiations, right? I always say you need to be negotiating from the other person's point of view. And that's even more so with your partner and money, you know? Yeah. And so with all this wisdom you have, you spent 12 years in the industry, you've battled it out with a partner as well and clearly succeeded, like clearly employed some of those tips, got him over the line. If you were in your 20s and you were doing all of this again, would you do it the same way? Like, would you prioritize buying a house, prioritize traveling? Any changes? Oh, I've, I've got two changes that probably are directly conflicting with each other. So <laughs> there we go. They're but, my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think back and I'm like, I've had a job since I was 14, right? And okay, the, the micro-investing platforms that we have now didn't exist then, but Something of some form could have existed. I just had no idea what I was doing with my money. As soon as money entered my hand, it left it. You know, I just, that was the hot mess part of my financial journey. I could not stop spending money. And I just, I never had more than 50 bucks in my savings account. I look back and I'm like, money is such a security blanket for me. What was I doing? Like, that must have felt awful all the time. And I do remember being very stressed. I just didn't see the point in saving. And I, I, I didn't even know investing was a thing that you could do. Like it wasn't even on my radar. Term deposits were how I thought you looked after your money and Oh my grew God, it. we are the same person. That is, I, that we are literally the same person. That is literally. My bank account's like a sieve and 
the only way I could think to stop myself from spending was to put in a term deposit where I was contractually prohibited from accessing it without severe penalty. We are the same person. Oh, right? my God. And you look back and you're like, imagine, like, okay, I know it was just a little crappy cafe job, but even putting away 20 bucks a week from when I was 14, that could have been amazing. But no, I waited until I was 28 to even contemplate such things. So that's great. Love that for me. Well, in four <laughs> years, you said you're 32. Mm, 34 now, but thank you. I'll take that, that as the eye cream work. I mean, you look younger than that, so like, don't worry about <laughs> <Yay>. it. Considering <laughs> you have a toddler, you look phenomenal. You don't look lacking sleep at all. You actually look fantastic. Why, thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you my eye cream recommendations yeah. afterwards. All of my uh, various thingamajigs are working very hard. Oh, good. I'll pass out the recommendations with the thingamajigs immediately. Yeah, so that is a genuinely phenomenal turnaround. And a lot of people just feel like, oh, I'm going to pack it in. Like it's, I'm 28, it's too late. It's not, it's really not. Even if, if in your 50s, you know, I mean, I'm a big believer that it's never, ever too late. But, you know, in your 50s, you can still make phenomenal ground and you can do it with, with actually pretty small changes. So many of the changes I made at first were really small and yet they built up so fast. So there's that. The other thing I would do is, yeah, I do wish that actually I'd gone and traveled. (laughs) So I say I wish I'd started earlier, but I also wish I'd been a bit more footloose and fancy free because the thing is that the way I dealt with never holding on to my money is I was always quite obsessively looking for job opportunities, income opportunities. And so I stayed at uni far too long. I have too many degrees. Don't recommend that. And then I went straight into working and was constantly trying to prove myself, take new job opportunities. I went straight into radio. So that's a lot of shift work. You're working all hours. And, you know, my late teens, early 20s was just so much work, 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 trying to get these degrees, trying to prove myself in the industry. And I'm very fortunate now in that I have a career that I think a lot of people would like to have. I have a lot of opportunities. I'm very grateful for those. And I probably could only have got that by throwing myself into it the way I did. But I do look back and I'm like, man, like, again, I have a toddler now. I'm not going to Thailand and doing a full moon party or, you know, whatever. (laughs) I'm like, I kind of missed that spot. Yeah, not a lot of people talk about, you know, it's kind of like the finance community loves binaries. And it's like, oh, you're either going to be super, super frugal and very good with your money or you are going to be fast and loose and travel. And there's not really that discussion around how you can kind of moderate those two extremes. But I was unwilling to part with my money, spending frivolously, but also didn't really have all that much travel or experiences to show for it because I was bad with my money, but constantly chasing income. And so it's a, it's a, a funny place to land, but I think is probably the case for a lot of people, like constantly working, never really able to accumulate any real reward from how much effort, but an incredible work ethic. So it works out, people. Just wait, you know, get your money sorted and it will all be okay. And I've got to say, the more I've got my money sorted, the better my career has got. Because when you've got that stable money foundation, you can take risks with your career that may or may not pay off. And the job I'm in now would not have come about if I didn't have that stability. And, you know, it's not that I'm holding a gun to my employer's head all the time, but they're also well aware that I could 
leave at any point. And I, I would actually be okay for quite a while. I'm confident I would find another job pretty quickly, but I would be fine for quite a while if I chose to leave right now, which is the ultimate negotiating trump card. <laughs> you know, you don't want to play it all the time, but if your boss is just quietly aware that you can leave, if you make a reasonable request, they're very unlikely to say no to it, which might not always be the case at other times. So I, I have found that it just it gives you more power in all sorts of situations. There you go, people. An emergency fund in the most sexy way. You can go into negotiations with your boss like a boss. Exactly. <laughs> so for anyone who also might be at any age of their life and also looking to, you know, get started or even just, you know, a lot of might be investing but still not very good at saving or might be looking to take that plunge into property investment, like diversifying out of equities or into equities for a lot of Australians that are obsessed with property. It's the other way around. What would you recommend they read or listen to to get started? Okay, I'm not going to recommend myself because that's cheating. Well, I will. You should all read Financial Hot Mess and <laughs> Cooking the Books and Tells Your Money, Your Future, actually, which is your other book. There you go. Yes. Yes, there we Available go. Available at all you. good bookstores. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I love is J.L. Collins' Simple Path to Wealth. Absolute classic. And it really is if you have a busy life and you just wish you could grow your wealth without it, you know, taking up all day, which is absolutely, I think, the best way. J.L. Collins' Simple Path to Wealth is incredible. Also in terms of mindset and making sure that you enjoy your money, because here's what can happen to some people is they spend so long trying to save, trying to invest, that when it comes time to use that money, they can't bring themselves to. They've gone too much into the hoard mindset. And you do want to be building, but you don't want to be hoarding. And a book that I think is really incredible for that is Die With Zero. Love that book. I mean, like everything, it can be taken too far, but I think it's really, really good on the mindset front and then deciding which bits of it apply to your life. So top two recommendations Love there. that. There you go. It's been genuinely a pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much for joining us on Big Swinging Stocks. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. And to our audience for joining us as well, thank you for coming back for another episode of Big Swinging Stocks. Make sure that you like and subscribe to us on whichever platform you love to listen to us on and make sure to leave a review. We love knowing what you loved about the episode and you can catch Francis on TikTok and on Instagram, Francis Cook NZ, right? That's the one. Francis with an E, not an I, because I'm a girl. <laughs> Thanks. See you next week. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.